Hello friends, this is Dr. Benjamin Smith, lecturer in philosophy with Catholic Studies Academy. Welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, where we explore the 2,000-year-old Catholic intellectual tradition, as well as topics from our contemporary experience. Today, I'm joined uh, by my friend and colleague, Dr. Richard Bozzichelli, uh, to talk about the major um, uh, challenges facing uh, the Catholic Church today. Um, you know, along with kind of, I think, the kind of feeling of urgent crises that we keep uh, sort of running into maybe in our, you know, sort of broader society, Rich, it seems like there's something like a similar phenomena going on in our, in our sort of ecclesial experience, you know, uh, within our church experience that there's this kind of just like constant churn of like bad news, controversies you know things of that nature uh i guess it also because there's to you know to some degree depends on you know what media sources you tune into but you know regardless i mean even if you're barely disconnected you still end up you know with a lot of the sense of you know just bad things happening you know and challenges and this sort of <clears throat> large-scale just sort of pressure on Catholics and the church. Sometimes I feel it a little bit more and sometimes I feel a little less, you know? Uh -huh. uh, and I think sometimes I sort of see it more globally. Sometimes I see it more locally, you know, and like yep. particular issues pushing in, you know? Um, but I, I think it's undeniable that the Catholic church, and maybe this has been really going on since maybe the 1960s, uh, 1970s, the Catholic Church does face these major crises or major challenges that seem to be persistent, this uh, sort of persistent pressure, um, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, that, that seems to be sort of, I don't know, undermining or at least attempting to undermine uh, Catholic life. And so today we wanted to, to talk about that some and, and maybe you know, sort of identify what we, or talk about what we identify as maybe some of the, the major uh, challenges. Um, you know, some of the flashpoints, I think, are pretty well known, but maybe maybe we can sort of give a, a, a deeper sort of perspective on that. I think you could talk about these issues, um, you know, more globally, like in the sort of literally like the global scale, what's going on in the world that's bringing so much pressure on the Catholic Church and on mm -hmm. Catholic life. And then maybe more locally and personally, you know what? What are those those areas of pressure that we, you know, sort of contact uh, have contact with in our ordinary lives and our lived experience? Uh, so, you know, Dr. Wills, kind of, we'll start with you. What, what are your What are your initial thoughts in terms of maybe looking at the big picture of yeah. the the pressure on the Catholic Church? Right. So, um, the first thing I want to say is that, and please. The audience should not take me as saying this in a way that in any way dismisses the problem. This is purely historical context. Um, this pressures on the church are nothing new. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they go back to the ancient church where, you know, sure. people wanted to wipe us out. <laughs> right. Right? And there were like large scale, um, there's large scale martyrdom going on, right? Mm -hmm. Persecutions. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about the current situation is um, not merely that the world, to a great extent, hates us. Um, 
which you know the the apostles would have been comfortable with that right mm-hmm. um it's that many of our problems come from within and I, I don't think that's entirely new either that certainly isn't but it's worse at sometimes in history of the church than it is at other times fair enough um and right now we have um a great number of kind of self-created problems mm-hmm. and i i, I want to that'll come out i think as we kind of unpack this discussion a bit Mm -hmm. but to take a look at the global landscape right um our audience is probably comprised mostly of um people from the united states and uh the english-speaking um other english-speaking countries right and i know we have some audience some of our audience comes from uh germany and and some other places right so Mm -hmm. um but mostly European uh, mm-hmm. and um, and American, right? Right. So we're talking about the global Western church. Um, mm-hmm. And um, that's where most of our audience comes from. But as it turns out, right, there's a lot more church than that. Um, sure. Right? <laughs> we all know that. But, right, right. But, but we don't see those. We don't see that part of the church very much. And when you sure. look at... Um, the situation in China mm-hmm. is a complete disaster. Right. Um, you've got this China agreement w- between the Vatican uh, and the, communi- the Chinese Communist Party, mm-hmm. which um, many would argue places the faithful Catholics there in a very difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, whatever hopes may have um you know may have motivated the vatican to make this agreement mm-hmm. which allowed the communist party to have a say in who's appointed a bishop and so forth right 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 um it's not at all clear that anything good has happened for the church as a result of it right um i, I happen to know um i happen to know um at least one person who is directly affected by mm. um, this situation. And um, of course I can't disclose this person's name, but um, you know, it's, it's not, um, it's not a pretty situation at all. Mm-hmm. And that's a fairly significant, um, that's a fairly significant contingent of the Catholic church. Sure. A minority for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, um, a major contingent in the church. And so there, you know, when we look at our problems in the United States, we compare them to the problems that the Chinese Catholics face. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, our problems seem pretty insignificant. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, sure, sure. Right. And you could also look at the church in the Middle East, mm-hmm. the church in parts of Africa, in places that are dominated by um, militant Islamists, mm-hmm. and um, persecution happens there that looks a lot like the kind of thing that would happen in the early church. Sure. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, I think, you know, when you look at the broader, at a global scale, right, in a, you know, let's say non-Western mm-hmm. uh, situations, um you know, you do find pressure and persecution in Africa. What you know, right? You know, you know, Catholics and other Christians as well. 
run into, you know, pretty straightforward persecution from some Islamic groups, right? Um, what's really interesting about that, I mean, you know, think about it is the pressure of the Chinese government, mm-hmm. right? Well, that's a secular kind of um, socialist totalitarian kind of pressure, yeah. right? Um uh, you know, you look at Africa, it's sort of a different situation, right? That's an Islamic, theistic, right? Yeah. Sort of, uh, you know, uh, pressure and persecution, right? Right, right. Uh, you know, so there, you know, the Catholic Church is facing different kinds of challenges um, in different parts of the globe, even where you see it that it's more overtly coercive, right? There's different sources of maybe coercion. Mm-hmm. You know, which is kind of interesting, right? Right, and um, and then in the West, I would say, mm-hmm. right, you've got this. Um, you know, there's a there's a hedonism that's taken hold in the West mm-hmm. that resembles the kind of hedonism one would have encountered in the ancient pagan world, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, and so and and it's it's masked right it's masked under the guise of wisdom and science mm-hmm. and you know learning sure. right, right? Right. Um, sophisticated veneer mm-hmm. but, even uh, justice and justice right yeah so it's but it's um you know but it's abject uh debauchery for the most part right right um and um and so we've got all these different fronts right mm-hmm. that the church is being kind of attacked on and i think that one of the difficulties here is that uh the way we've chosen to engage has been um sort of um maybe characterized more by appeasement mm-hmm. than um and I, I i don't i'm not saying that to just sort of um you know uh just level a criticism um to be to be disagreeable mm-hmm. um you know in um when we talk about appeasement we think of the period before the second world war when neville chamberlain was attempting to avoid conflict mm-hmm. uh and, and keep keep britain out of um out of another devastating conflict like the one that they had suffered in the first world war which remember for them right, sure. fresh memory and it was um mm-hmm deeply traumatic for the society right right? so um it's understandable why you would want to find a road that um engages that engages people who are clearly at odds with you um Mm -hmm. in a way that avoids an all-out war Mm -hmm. the question is whether that's always sort of feasible Mm -hmm. and um and it didn't really, it seems it didn't serve Britain particularly well um, back then. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think it served the Catholic Church very well in the <laughs> Second Vatican Council. It's interesting. So, you know, uh, I mean, one thing that's for sure, right, is albeit we don't maybe experience the same kind of persecution here, Um uh, in terms of the sort of overt, explicit um, 
kind of physical co- coercion for the most part, we'll say. Um, there is this other kind of rivalry or competition, right, that we're experiencing, right, with this kind of uh, decadent culture that you're sort of saying is the is the yeah. alternative, the rival. I think you might be like sort of kind of label it Dionysian, right, yeah. right. <laughs> uh, kind of culture uh, that's pushing against Christianity and seemingly winning. And I say seemingly winning in this sense, the numbers bear that out, right? That is, anybody who's looked at the sociological data associated with religious practice, say in the United States over the last 30 years, 40 years, you know, this is not really uh, disputable, right? Uh, that, you know, um, uh, dramatic decreases over time in vocations, people being baptized newly into the Catholic Church, um, people being married in the Catholic Church, most recently even baptisms of Catholics having children as like yeah. that's going down too, right? Which right. is one of those you, we, we hung on to for a while, right? Because of the strong sort of sociological connections that often between families and, ch- and, the, ch- and the Catholic Church. Um, so, I mean, you know, th- these are, I mean, not to be overly gloomy, but these are just facts. Yeah. Um, they're facts that even the United States bishops have acknowledged, uh, maybe not sufficiently, but they have acknowledged that this is happening, right? Um, you know, that the West, uh, um, you know, Europe, it's worse. <laughs> you know, right. it's bad here and worse there, you know, right. with a few exceptions. Uh, it, it's worse there, even in Central and South America, right? We see uh, a decline uh, where you, know, you think of these as really just sort of deeply Catholic cultures, and certainly there is to some degree. Um, that's true. But the fact that we're losing against Dionysius, it -hmm. seems to me, is correct. What do you think, Rich? I think that is correct. Okay. Um, And, you know, when we, so if we trace this, um, we, you know, it's, I find the more I, the more I study um, philosophy and theology and history uh, and culture in general, I find that drawing sharp lines is very, very difficult. Sure. You know? And so, yeah. like, if you ask me to pinpoint when it was that this spiral began, um, mm. you know, I jump to certain dates, and then I think, no, it's probably earlier than that. No, it's probably <laughs> earlier than that. <laughs> right. And I, I could go back, you know, I could go back um, easily to the early 20th century, um, but I, I want to, you know, probably the most obvious the most obvious thing to point to is the early 1960s. Sure. Uh, the introduction of um, oral contraception, mm-hmm. which sparked the sexual revolution. Now, mm-hmm. the sexual revolution, of course, was a philosophical concept that mm-hmm. went back much further than that, which is what I'm talking about and not being able to draw mm-hmm. sharp lines, right? Right, right. We could easily go back to the 1920s and see a culture which um wanted to celebrate um a Dionysian spirit much more than mm-hmm. uh it was able to do because of the yeah. of um of sexual involvement. Sure. Yeah, it's yeah, and, and sort of the, the, the pill takes that that that, that, that calculus out away, right. Yeah. It I think that's away. probably true, yeah, to uh uh to some extent. It's funny, I wish I knew I would really love to spend more time 
studying the 1950s and 60s like in a detailed historical way uh-huh. um to look at sort of like the various steps because you know you have so much in the mix there it feels like yeah you've got the vietnam war which is a real flashpoint um you know for a lot of americans um you know you've got the advent you've got this the civil rights movement and then civil rights violence, you know, mm-hmm. violence around these. We also forget about that part of it. I mean, there were riots all over the country in different places, yeah. literally, you know, parts of Detroit being burned to the ground. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just, this is a time of a lot of vermin, you know, yeah. you know, you have student riots in, in, in Paris that are like real riots, I mean, you know, mm. like really bad stuff, you know, and, you know, it's like what was unleashed in the sixties, you know? Um, and it does feel, I mean, I've used that term Dionysus already, but that seems to me kind of, there is a kind of anarchic flavor, maybe it feels yeah. like to that time, a rebellion against all the institutions and customs, right. including and especially uh, sexual customs and mores and institutions. Right. Um, and, and and then, of course, you can sort of ask the question, um, you know, why? <laughs> you know, like, what what was what was this? Um, and, I, you know, it's probably lots of, you know, complex and decent yeah, answers. There are there. a lot of there are a lot of influences. But I, you know, it's it's interesting that um, Friedrich Nietzsche mm-hmm. could be credited with um you know, a great deal of the philosophical underpinnings of this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was, um, he really became more popular in the institutions, in the universities, sure. mm-hmm. in the 1940s and 50s, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And began to have his influence on another generation of thinkers like Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, right? And and mm-hmm. so, um, you know, the idea of this nihilism that leads to an existential crisis right there's no meaning and purpose and value given in the world so right. if we're going to have it we have to choose it for ourselves we've got to create it for ourselves right mm-hmm. um and um and that's the sort of thing that's being i think expressed in these ways right now yeah. um I, I don't know what you know nietzsche might think well i, I might know what he might think Um, you know the kind of sexual debauchery that went on Mm -hmm. um in the sexual revolution um i'm I'm not sure he would have been all behind that you know Mm -hmm. i think he might have seen um he might have seen it as debased to just kind of you know my my highest aspiration is the gratification (laughs) of my my basic urges Mm -hmm. um but nonetheless right Mm -hmm. if um if you've taken away meaning, purpose, and value, and sure, th- and therefore, you know, there is no real good or evil, right? There's no morality mm-hmm. as such. Mm-hmm. It's not dictated to you from above, right? Then, um, you know, then then do what you want, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I think that's a major influence. Sure, and 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 right along with that, of course, and of course, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg question here, right? Is you know, did this sort of philosophical nihilism um, and sort of 1960s kind of Dionysian spirit, you know, do they cause the decline of religion or did religion, decline of religion sort of abet, right, the growth of these things? Do you, do you see what yeah. I'm saying? I think um, what I, what I, when I think about this kind of problem, I think of an engine. Okay. You know, and I think of, um, 
in an engine, there's, I mean, I'm not a mechanic. Okay. okay. <laughs> I have some idea how it works. Sure. Okay. So the, you know, the piston, you have these opposing forces, right? Uh -huh. So right. one piston pulls in one direction, the other one, mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's a flywheel. There used to be a flywheel, right? Yeah. Uh, or something. And, um, the point is the forces kind of keep each other moving. Right. So I don't know which is the chicken and which is the egg. Okay. But what I do know is that they have an influence on one another. That's what I'm pretty clear about. Sure. It's a right. vicious, uh, a vicious sort of cooperation. Yeah. Vicious circle. Right. So yeah. you've got, yeah. um, you've got religion declining. Um, the Dionysian spirit seems mm. more appealing. The Dionysian right. spirit seems more appealing. So religion declines. declines. Yeah. What makes religion in their own time, Rich, so... I mean, on the supposition, right, that the Dionysian spirit's always been there. It's always a possibility, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, otherwise the ancient Greeks wouldn't have thought of it, right? right. You know, uh, I mean, you think of the Bacchae, right, and and the kind of wild evil that Dionysius unleashes, right? And, and the Greeks are talking about it, right? It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Like, the Greeks kind of celebrate it, but they're also kind of like, yeah, this is really what I you know, yeah, like, uh, like Dionysus can really get out of hand, yeah. right? I mean, I think the ancient Greeks are really interesting in that way, you know. Uh, and, uh, you, know, you know, it's always there, right? Um, why is 20, why was 20th century Christianity, Catholicism, 21st century Catholicism so incapable of combating that Dionysian spirit. Yeah. So I kind of think that, um, or just ineffective, maybe not incapable, but just ineffective or ineffective, less effective than we would yeah, want. Ineffective. You know? So, um, I think that's actually one of the major questions that John Paul II was concerned about uh -huh. during his papacy. Um, and I think that, if you ask John Paul II, you ask Joseph Ratzinger, um, if you ask probably, um, you know, Ari de Lubach, this question, I think what they might say is that um, the anti-modernist period had gone on too long. Okay. And um, now I know there are plenty of people in our audience, you know, who are really pro-anti-modernist. Uh -huh. And I get that. I get that. Um, but, but, you know, when you read what these thinkers have to say about the anti-modernist period in the church, um, you know, they seem to be thinking that we, we're still beating the same horse while the philosophical conversation is going on without us. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we're directing our criticisms at a problem that, um, society has has left behind mm -hmm. by the time the second vatican council rolled around we weren't really dealing with modernism anymore we were dealing with mm -hmm. postmodernism, and we we're mm -hmm. entering upon even the period of today post postmodernism, right mm -hmm. um that's a little bit later than vatican ii but sure the writing was already on the wall that we were headed in that direction and there were mm -hmm. people who could kind of um see it on the horizon mm -hmm. so um 
the point you know, maybe is, 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 is it Romano Gardini who wrote the book? Is it Gardini who wrote the book, uh, The End of the Modern World? No, I don't recall. I don't recall. Okay. Who wrote that. Okay. Um, so, but yeah, this is exactly the kind of thing that um, that we're talking about, right? This is the critique. Mm-hmm. So it's not that anti-modernism was wrong, okay? That's mm-hmm. not the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is that uh, the issue is that while we were concerned, we, we were still concerned about certain questions about the relationship between faith and reason, uh-huh. while the rest of the world had abandoned the whole notion of um, of authority in matters of faith, um, objective morality. Mm-hmm. Um, the belief in God, mm-hmm. right? They they completely moved on from this. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah, and even maybe to some degree, the faith in an enlightenment form of reason was in decline. It was right? in decline, right. In decline, right? Uh, at least in the sort of um, grand meta narrative sense, right? That say Francois Leotard talks about in terms of you know the the, the post modernity is. Uh, the rejection of all meta narrative, right, right. Um, and including right the Great Enlightenment meta narrative, right, of man's progress through rations and science. Um, you know, we've talked some about how maybe even the postmodern view of all that maybe wasn't actually the final story because it does seem as if there is some reassertion to some degree of scientific rationalism, but in a way that I don't think that say the masters of the enlightenment would have agreed to right the mm-hmm. the contemporary invocation of scientific rationalism seems to me to be incoherent and um highly pragmatic right yeah. uh, and technocratic whereas you know if you think about you know the real like the the french philosophes you know th- this was this was like the story of history and history going in one direction, right, right, and uh, that being a progress uh, of progress grounded in scientific rationalism, uh, yeah. whereas scientific rationalism is just a, a smaller part of the story. I think you know people get. I think Enlightenment thinkers thought that scientific rationalism could give us that account of purpose, value, and meaning, right, that you were talking about, mm-hmm. and no, that that's not the case anymore right that's not the case right yeah we might be think of it as now scientific rationalism is the best explanation or the best technique right yeah that's for right. technological and progress. if you can do it if you can yeah. do it then you're free to do it that's right but it leaves open the 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 deeper metaphysical questions about um about meaning purpose and value that's right so yeah. today we have you know we have this uh transhumanism that's going on yes right right and um and I think it's important to note that, you know, gender theory, I think, I think, yeah. uh, is a part of that movement. Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, you're not going to let nature tell you who you are, who you could be, who you ought to be. Right. right? That's that's a matter of choice. And we can we can um, subdue nature, right? We can mm-hmm. we can use our technological advancements to make nature kind of come in line with what we yeah yeah sure it's fascinating to see and not and again from a classical perspective not shocking if you really think about it to see the dionysian sort of spirit develop into post-humanism 
and maybe eventually even anti-humanism, yeah. right? Um, given you know the 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 chaotic, the chaotic core and spirit of Dionysius, right? Yeah, you know <laughs> that uh, it, desire doesn't have any eros uh, unregulated. Yeah. There's nothing inside of it to 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 make it stop. Right, right, right. right. So it becomes yeah. completely vampiristic, and That's right. yes, absolutely. So Paul the Sixth had said, you know that 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 um, that the smoke of Satan had entered the church through some crack. Okay, and um, you know what is that crack exactly? It's hard to say. Right, but um, you, you know, there's there's no question that the opportunity was there. Mm-hmm. for that infiltration to occur. Sure. And I think we're being completely naive if we um if we allow our normalcy bias to blind us to the fact that it that it it has occurred. Right. right? There so, is uh even inside um even inside the church some mm-hmm. sort of diabolic uh influence. Yeah, so that's an important point, Rich, because I'm thinking about this, you know, like, okay, so I ask you why, you know, the Catholic Church in the 20th century was ineffective in its competition with Dionysius. Um, And part of your answer was um, that perhaps, you know, we had stayed uh, engaged in the anti-modern discourse or dialectic for too long, right? Mm -hmm. And so we 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 had not successfully pivoted to the advent of postmodernity, uh, um, okay, perhaps. Um, but then you could, uh, you know, like the question occurred to my mind. Okay, but the council was a while back, right? So yeah. uh, you know, between now and then, it's, you know, we're getting decades and decades building up, right. and and we don't seem to be more effective. Maybe part of the answer to that is the the smoke of Satan reference uh, here that you're talking about. Yeah. Right, so the infiltration occurs in the church, and now, um, now I don't, I don't want to get into a discussion here about you know uh, evil bishops and all this sort of thing. I think there sure. are some, but um, I don't, I don't want to get into that that okay. whole discussion. Sure, um, there's plenty of material elsewhere. On <laughs> sure, <laughs> I agree. Um, but, but it is clear to me that. Um, it is clear to me that while we weren't looking, right, while we weren't paying attention to where the real uh, battle was being fought, mm-hmm. um, we were outflanked, and mm-hmm. people were um, admitted into positions of power and authority in the church and in various ecclesial um, ministries mm-hmm. and para-ecclesial ministries who were really more Dionysian in their mm-hmm. outlook. Or, you know, if in, in any event, uh, just um, secular or something, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, where would this occur? Well, it occurs in a lot of different fronts, but all around um, a similar time frame. Mm-hmm. So in academia, um, this kind of, this began to occur in I want to say the 1960s. We could probably trace it a little earlier than that. 
Um, but it was a long process that uh, that took, you know, 10 years, maybe 15 or 20 to occur. Mm-hmm. What happened was, um, you know, there was a time in the middle of the 20th century when Catholic institutions of higher learning were um, very, very strong. And, um, you know, they had they had gained um, they had gained recognition, I would say, I would say they had gained recognition in academia at large as, um, you know, as real contenders. They were real Mm -hmm. academic institutions. Oh, they were these troublesome Catholic types. Right. Right. Um, But it was impossible to ignore anymore that good scholarship was happening at these places. Right. And um, and so, from this position of strength, the um, decision was made to stop being so kind of barricaded and defensive, mm-hmm. and to we figured, well, we could allow some presence of um, hostile viewpoints mm-hmm. into our discussion, and. Um, so we could hire faculty members. We could hire a guy in philosophy who, you know, is interested in um, Nietzsche or something, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so this kind of thing began to occur. Right. And you ended up hiring people who not only had an academic interest in Nietzsche, like, for example, you and I do. Mm-hmm. Um, not that we specialize in Nietzsche, but, I mean, sure. right? You can rec- We've talked about Nietzsche before. He's a mm-hmm. very important person to read and to understand. But people who were Nietzschean, right? right people right. who were, they were not Catholic, mm-hmm. um, now on the faculty. And at first you think, well, okay, that's one person in a large department. Um, mm-hmm. But then what happens? Well, now, of course, um, as we've begun to admit people like this into institutions, they are on hiring committees and they advance in the ranks and become mm-hmm. decision makers of the institution. Mm-hmm. And gradually, right, the um, they hire more faculty members and maybe a disproportionate mm-hmm. number of faculty members who no longer are there to advance fundamentally the evangelical mission mm-hmm. and purpose of the institution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, And so as the mission begins to soften, the right. it, it eventually turns so that it no longer even is the mission anymore, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, and now you've got you've got Catholic institutions all over the country that are fundamentally mm-hmm. that are actually not particularly safe places for a person to be an Orthodox Catholic. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, it seems to me uh, one of the um, one of the pivots that happens in the nineteen late fifties, nineteen sixties. Is a egalitarian affirmative ethos uh-huh. uh, that did not exist as much in the broader culture, right? There was still a sense, say, in the 1950s, if you went to a university of in loco parentes, that is, that uh, college students should not govern themselves, that college students should be governed by the faculty and by yeah. the administration, and that the administration was to be in line with parents and the broader cultural ethos. Um, you know, even in the 1950s, there still was kind of an American ethos. Uh, 
And again, not to say, you know, point it out as we've talked about before as a golden age or anything like that, but there was still sort of an idea of hierarchy tradition um, that needed to be instantiated within institutions. Right. And that those institutions, broadly speaking, needed to reflect kind of traditional values and at least in some vague sense, Christianity, again, maybe kind of watered down, but still there, you know, um, uh, you know, you find the military culture still very strong, very disciplined, very hierarchical, right? Uh, families still hierarchical in the 1950s and 40s, right? Um, you know, again, you can find that, uh, you see what I'm saying, right? Church sure. is still very much that way, right? Something changes in the 50s and late 50s and 60s, right? And there's just a general, let's get rid of hierarchy. Everybody is good. Everybody is equal. And, and we just need to affirm, right? Yeah. Like, and, you know, any, like, don't be so stodgy. Yeah, maybe marital sex is great, but so is fornication, right? And fornication, yeah. I, mean, I mean, like, there's many ways of being sexually happy. And let's just, you know, affirm, let's just be affirmative, you know? Right. Stop being right. negative. Because here's the thing. The, the prior culture did have this negative critique. Like it did have a like, you know, no, this is bad over here. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is good over here. Right. right. Um, and uh, being a coward, being a, a draft dodger, being uh, a habitual fornicator, being a woman uh, uh, who's pregnant out of wedlock, uh, all these being a divorcee, all these things, bad. Yeah. Look down on. Right. You know, uh, now maybe there needed to be better nuance and all that uh, in those issues and situations. But the but the pivot is to let's just affirm everything and kind of feel like you know everything's equal, everything's valuable, every, you know, and we're going to affirm everybody across the board. Uh, it seems to me that that is a major shift, right? Well, it definitely unleashes the Dionysian spirit, right? Sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah. If you're going to do that, and I think um, you know, uh, you know, you see this. Uh, you know, I'm not alone in this, I mean, Bennett 16th has pointed this out, that in some of the conversations around the Second Vatican Council, you know, what I think he's, I think he called himself, correct me if I'm wrong, Rich, a, a kind of almost Neo-Pelagian sort of spirit of just man is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like a, like yeah. an unnuanced almost affirmation of the human. Am I correct about that? Yeah, right. So um I don't think that uh I don't think that Benedict read the council that way. Correct. Yeah. Um, but I do think that when you know he was very critical of of you know the the spirit of Vatican II, right? Sure. Because he, he talked a lot about the two different councils. There was the mm -hmm. council as such, and then there there was this spirit of the council, right? Mm -hmm. And the spirit of the council for Benedict is the one that ultimately won out culturally and had the greater mm -hmm. influence, um, which of course was a major problem in his in his sure. right, right. But um, but in that spirit of the council, um, the, the it's definitely the case that there's a that there's an, a a a sort of neo Pelagian um, affirmation of the person, so that you know you don't you don't need um, you don't need the church as such, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, remember it was in 2000, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. So this was still John Paul II, um, Benedict VI, uh, John Paul II and Ratzinger was the um, mm -hmm. 
was the prefect of the congregation at that time. Right. Um, so this the um, the CDF um, the CDF um, published um, uh, Dominus Jesus, right? Which was mm -hmm. um, the that was the document, the instruction on the um, the unicity of Christ for salvation, right? In other words, unicity, right, means he's the only way. Christ right. is the only way for salvation. And um, and that was done in response to this, this problem that was perceived mm -hmm. that people no longer seem to be understanding this idea, this fundamental teaching <laughs> of the church. Right. right? You, you could be, Buddhism is just as good, and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, the, that really nice Marxist guy down the street, just as good. Right. Yeah, the key is to be a good person, right? Right. And then mm -hmm. you'll go to heaven. Mm -hmm. Um, and we've we so that's the Neo-Pelagian spirit. And there mm -hmm. are people who would criticize, you know, a document like uh a document like Lumen Gentium or Gaudium et Spes as um as kind of pushing, you know, maybe it could be read in a way that mm -hmm. that allows mm -hmm. us to hold that view. Mm -hmm. I don't think those would be correct readings of those documents, but um, but you know the critique is it's out there. Yeah, the critique is out there, and yeah. I understand it. I think Tracy Rowland sort of developed some ideas like that about Gaudium et Spes, not Lumen Gentium. But anyways, I know I remember that being part of the conversation about uh, in the theological or philosophical circles maybe ten years ago. Um, yeah, you know when when you know, sort of Benedict's theology was still more to the fore. Yeah, uh, of things. Um, so I want to offer something here. I think, Rich, and then you can respond to it. Um, you know, in that, in view of this, right, this kind of um, kind of pivot towards an excessively, well, so I'm going to play in my hand here, but an excessively affirmative attitude towards the human condition. Okay, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, this ends up. Um, I think being one of our mistakes, one of our maybe, yeah. maybe major mistakes, because we end up thinking that, you know, if we just get the UN right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the right NGOs in place, uh -huh. then without sacraments, without radical conversions to Jesus Christ, you know, we can do. We can really advance the well-being and welfare of humanity, right? Yeah. And you know, Pope Francis himself has pointed out, you know, that we, you, the church is not an NGO, right? Yeah. And shouldn't be thought of that way, right? Uh, that that it's not a, just another humanitarian, you know, intervention or institution. Right. Um, but too often, maybe the church does this look like another. I mean, Pope Francis wouldn't offer that criticism if it weren't the case that at least it often appears that, right? Yeah. Uh, that the, the, the church comes across as just another humanitarian institution. In which case, if it is just another humanitarian institution and just, you know, well, we just, you know, feed people and shut up, um, yeah. you know, about right. other matters. And that seems to be kind of the attitude, right? Um, what I want to say is that this is a really unfortunate turn because I believe, think, that an essential part of Christianity is a fairly radical critique of the world. Yeah. Uh, as it is. 
um, while still affirming the goodness of creation and affirming, you know, the, the achievements that we can see that are wherever there is the real, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Uh, nevertheless, coupling that with a fairly radical critique of human evil um, yes. and fallenness. And, and the, the, to, to leave that out is, in a sense, to kind of leave out, not maybe not everything, but a good deal of what makes sense of Catholicism and the gospel. What do you think? Uh, I completely agree. And I would say, um, let me just say a couple things about this. Number one, mm-hmm. um, it's a very common failure of institutions to um, to basically affirm principles on the one hand mm-hmm. and affirm them correctly. But then in the practical execution, right, the actual pragmatic judgments that are made about mm-hmm. how to proceed to undermine those very things, mm-hmm. right? This happens all the time. And as you know, in leadership, I think um, it's a sign of a good leader that you don't allow that to happen. Sure. And um, but ineffective leaders very often do allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind. Francis is right in pointing out that the church is not an NGO, and yet, mm-hmm. objectively, pragmatic decisions are made that make the church look a lot like an NGO, mm-hmm. and not much more. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, one sees this when we appoint people to Vatican dicasteries um, who are at odds with the fundamental teachings of the church on matters of faith and morals. Mm-hmm. Um, their expertise in some particular area, irrespective of their particular, um, you know, the fact that they might be a heretic in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's of such value that they should be in this position of leadership. Mm-hmm. Practically, that undermines your claim that the church is is not just an NGO. Mm-hmm. All right, so I, I think that's, yeah. that, that's part of our, when I said earlier that many of our issues are self-created, mm-hmm. um, that's that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, right? We, we sort of do this to ourselves. We shoot ourselves in the foot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree, in principle, the church is not just an NGO. And when you go back to the ancient church and you think, we had a discussion about this earlier mm-hmm. um, off, uh, off camera. Um, you go back to the early church when it was getting started out, right? We noted right. that there were, there were basically three flanks. One was right, the Judaism right. from which they had come, uh, and many of them, many of the people in Judaism, refused to accept Christ as the Messiah. Mm-hmm. For, right, for whatever reason, could not bring themselves to do so. Um, another was the debaucherous pagan world of darkness and death that surrounded mm-hmm. them. And then a third flank was the very sophisticated philosophical tradition that had grown up uh, right. in uh, the Mediterranean world. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> and so you had three contenders here, right? Judaism on the one hand, um, which offered a God who transcended nature and who was all good and loving, um, who brought grace to the world. Uh, there was there were 
plenty of Jews, it wasn't universal at the time, but there were plenty of Jews who believed in some form of resurrection and mm-hmm. eternal life, right? Um, many of the great things that we associate with Christianity are already there in Judaism, right? Sure. But Judaism was, for the most part, an enclosed nationalist mm-hmm. religion. There right. were conversions to Judaism, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the norm. Right. Some among the um, Pharisees and some other sects did have a proselytic spirit, mm-hmm. but um, it wasn't widespread. Right? There, it wasn't a major movement within Judaism. So, for the most part, Judaism was a national religion. If you were born Jewish, you were Jewish, right? You were going to mm-hmm. be Jewish, and if you mm-hmm. were born a pagan, you were probably going to stay that way. Right. <laughs> so all, sure. all the hope. All mm-hmm. the hope that could be found within Judaism just was, practically speaking, inaccessible mm-hmm. to those outside of Judaism. They right. set a good moral example. They were a teaching authority, perhaps, right. but you couldn't be Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, now, on the other hand, uh, you had the, you know, the paganism was dark and frightening and violent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some other ways, delightful, right? There was a lot of sure. pleasure to be had sure. uh, in um, in paganism. But it was mm-hmm. also the dominant culture, right? Mm-hmm. It was also kind of the dominant culture. Yeah. It's what people had inherited. And people believed that these gods had power. And mm-hmm. um, they were fearsome and could hurt us, right? Sure, yeah. And so if we're going to get on the wrong side of such gods, we better have a god who could beat them. That's right. Yeah. You know, know, incurring the favor of, you know, negotiating your relationship with the gods, you know, is a, is a major part of, of, you know, uh, you know, the classical world, the ancient world, you know, and um, you know, it's, it it is interesting. You know, you, you sort of placate all the gods, but you also have special, you know, um, you know, if you're if your your wife is is pregnant, like you you honor a particular god more. You make special sacrifices to that goddess, right? The goddess yeah. of the hearth and home, you know, uh, that sort of thing. You know, it's, it is kind of a an interesting kind of that was uh, a real approach. that was a real part of the about part of the world back then, yeah. and mm-hmm. um, so that was a major flank that the church sure. had to deal with, and then um, and then on the philosophical side. These were really civilized people to a great extent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they were intellectual. They were mm-hmm. they were thoughtful people. They got things worked out, and they were living a life of reason, a life of self control. Um, there was a lot of appeal in that, mm-hmm. but they didn't have um, they didn't have this this particular god. Sure. Yeah. Now, I don't want yeah. to say that they were devoid of theistic belief. That would be false. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, but it was you know it was definitely sort of uh, obscured and shadowed and imperfect and fragmented, uh, you know, in its uh, grasp of God. Uh, certainly in God's providential care yeah. uh, uh, of of human beings. Uh, you know, parts you know different different. Uh, the one thing I enjoy about the philosophical schools is different parts of the philosophical schools got things right and got things wrong, you know, yeah. uh, you know, like the, the Platonists did a great job. I think it understanding the transcendence of God, the unity mm-hmm. of God, 
the spirituality of God, um, those sorts of uh, elements, you know, um, you know, I think the Aristotelians do a great job of getting the dependency of the world on God, correct, uh-huh. right? You know, the, the primacy of the contemplative life. The Stoics, you know, I think their understanding of providence and their kind of more benevolent view of the moral uh, authority, the moral authority yeah. of God. Sure, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Their their view of you know wanting to um, be uh, lovers of man, right? Just in general, you know, right? Uh, is is very admirable, you know. Uh, and so, I mean, there's there's you know each of the philosophical schools gets things right and just totally wrong, right? Yeah. <laughs> too. So it's a, it is interesting. Um, you know, and I think I've shared with you, I think one of the things they get wrong is they get wrong the radical fallenness of man, you know, That's right. and, 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 you know, like at the end of the day, I think I want to say to, to Plotinus, you know, I admire your aspirations towards, a, you know, an ascending union with God, mm-hmm. right? And in fact, you know, if I was talking to him in the ancient world, some of our theologians are going to pick that up and develop into something called the Beatific Vision. Right. right. <laughs> but but uh, the, the fact is, you can't do it. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, that's just not possible for you. You may think yeah, you in your have mind you have, but you just, it's not not something you can do by your methods, by your, you know, yeah. uh, teachings. And, and, and that's uh, actually. That's you actually know. part of the point in, in in the prologue of John's gospel, right? That's actually mm-hmm. the issue he's addressing. Interesting, yeah, yeah. Right? No one has ever truly seen God. Yeah, no, right, no one's right. ever seen God for real, except <laughs> the only begotten Son, right? Who is right. the to the Father. He has unfolded him before us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, exegesito, right? He's, he's unfolded him like, like the blossoming of a flower, opened mm-hmm. him up from within so we could see inside. Yeah. Uh, and that's... Um, so that that theme in John's Gospel of returning to the Father in and through Christ, who comes from above and returns to above, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the answer to that kind of an insight, where you have this this radically transcendent God beyond the universe, mm-hmm. um, but who precisely for that reason can never be known. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, then I mean, how does that? How does this relate to our contemporary situation? Seems to me it relates to our contemporary situation in this that we we fail to understand, unlike say what I think ancient man, when he encountered the gospel, when he, you know, I think the ancient man when he encountered the gospel, I'm talking about not the Jewish, but like the mm-hmm. Gentiles, right? Yeah. You might admire the philosophers, but you're like, I can't be that guy. <laughs> like, you know, and, and like I'm not this this philosophical sage, I'm not this you know, ascending thinker, right? Um, you know, uh, uh, but the Christians tell you, have, actually have a message for why. Yeah, you're right. It's because you're fallen, right? Yeah. You know, you're broken inside. Um, you know, and and you, and you need a savior. You need yeah. grace, right? And it's not something you can earn, work your way up to, purify yourself by, you know, any of that. Like you can't, there's nothing you can do, right? Right, right. It's going to fix your situation, right? Um, no matter how much you try to strive to be a Stoic sage, right? Yeah. Uh, and as admirable as Epictetus may be, right? Um, you know, uh, a great example of this is Cicero, right? I love, uh, you know, who who aspired to be a Stoic, but 
gave up. It's <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like, I just can't do it, you know? Like, uh, so anyways, uh, it's, uh, uh, I, I think in a similar way, right? Like, because we don't have that realistic view of man anymore, mm-hmm. it deprives us to some degree of helping people in terms of explaining the reality of their situation. Yeah. The reality of our own situation and why we need so desperately Christ and the sacraments and the fellowship of the church and the guidance of the magisterium. Right. I mean, does that make sense? No, it totally does. And I would say this as someone who's taught moral theology for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, If you don't start, I'm convinced. If you don't start with establishing the idea of um, the idea of original purity, followed by a catastrophic failure, mm-hmm. right? The introduction of original sin mm-hmm. and its enduring consequences. Mm-hmm. Then you're teaching it wrong, mm-hmm. right? You have to begin with that foundation. Right. Now right. that being said, uh, there are solutions. To those problems, but those solutions work within the framework of fallenness. Right. If you yeah. don't establish that framework of fallenness, then then, then you're missing <laughs> major ingredients. Right. I mean, that is our actual existential condition, right? It's that's yeah, yeah. Uh, this is not an abstraction. This is the concrete reality that we live, right? And and as odd as it might sound initially, right? Being excessively affirmative deprives the Catholic and the church from being in the best position to actually help people. Yeah. Right. Because you're not helping people understand the condition which they're really in. That's right. right. You know, um, that's not, that is not in a way any lack of love. Right. 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 It's more loving to say, Hey, my friend, your arm is cut off and you're bleeding to death. Right. Let's put a tourniquet on that. <laughs> let, let me help you. No, I mean, this is kind of silly, but, you know, the other, no, man, I'm just differently armed. Yeah, right, right, right. No, 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 you're, you're bleeding to death. You're not just differently armed. Uh-huh. You're bleeding to death. And, and and the Catholic Church wants to help you. Right. right? It's a serious problem. And <laughs> <laughs> right. not to make light yeah. of it in this, in the, with this extreme kind of example, but I kind of think that's true. I was I actually, uh, you know, one of the things I, you know, I work in a parish and one of the, most of my work is administrative, but I do do some teaching. And recently I taught, you know, I had an opportunity to teach um, to the, uh, to, um, a session to our, our high school youth ministry. And, you know, we had a really uh, good discussion about these sorts of matters in this connection that to love is not always to support uh, yeah, right. and, uh, or, or always to affirm. In yeah. fact, sometimes a loving thing is to say, no, I don't support you in doing X. I, I do not affirm this behavior or relationship. Yeah. I deny that it's a good thing to do. And I deny it because I love you. Yeah. Right. Um, right. right. And there's plenty in the New Testament, in sure. the New Testament, not just the old. Right. Of course. Right. Yeah. Um, to that, that, that shows that exact same position. Right. right. You spent yeah. long yeah. enough living as the pagans do. <laughs> right. Boxing, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, here's the in John Paul II, right? One of his mm. major themes 
was the idea of the new Areopagus, okay. right? The modern okay. Areopagus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, to remind the um, the audience, the passage, he's referring to a passage in 17th chapter of um, Acts of the Apostles, mm-hmm. where Paul goes to Athens and he's preaching the gospel and people are talking about this new religion, right? These These strange teachings. Right, that he's right, bringing, right. and some are curious, and some just think he's out of his mind. But um, he then kind of speaks in a more public way, right? Mm-hmm. He kind of takes the stage, and he says, um, "He says this. He says, uh, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and examined your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription." to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship as something unknown, I now proclaim to you. Mm-hmm. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. So he's there mm-hmm. he's addressing the way the pagans think about their gods, right? Sure. Because he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Mm-hmm. From one man, he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. God intended that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. Mm -hmm. For in him we live and move and have our being. Mm -hmm. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, Being offspring of God, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by man's skill and imagination. That's the idea of the graven image, right? The graven image is just a work of art Mm -hmm. that's used in religious worship. Mm -hmm. It's the idea that we have fashioned our concept of God according to our own imagination rather than on the basis of what's been revealed by him to Mm -hmm. us. All right. So, uh, although God overlooked the ignorance of earlier times, He now commands all people everywhere to repent, for He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the men He has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. Mm -hmm. Right. And then they heard this, and and some were like, "Well, we want to hear about this some more." Mm -hmm. Right. So um, that's the. That's what is that? That's Paul attacking all three flanks mm-hmm. that we've talked about, right? Mm-hmm. So the God that he knows as a Jew mm-hmm. is no longer merely nationalistically worshipped, sure. mm-hmm. right? But all human beings throughout the whole world. Um, and and he's come, this is and it brings with it also judgment, mm-hmm. right. Uh, accountability to the truth that he's that's being revealed to you now. It overcomes the limited, self-interested, in some way dependent pagan gods. Right. We have to negotiate some space for ourselves, right? Um, and the philosophical schools, right, that have this great wisdom of transcendence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and liberation to some degree for human beings 
but now framed within that realism that you were talking about right, right, the right. fallen human condition sure sure yeah 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 right. that's a that's a great passage uh to to meditate on i think and to where you see right yeah like uh, paul engaging as you say there's three three areas and i think you know rightly stands out right in our own time right you know as, as our illustration right for our own situation in terms of uh uh confronting the world um you know and uh and 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 you know how the catholic church can deal with dynasties <laughs> all yeah. right right so i mean yeah. he does he does affirm as good mm-hmm. their religiosity sure right that's a religion was considered a virtue in the ancient world right right Bye. and yeah. um and so he rightly says well you're very religious Mm-hmm. It's a good thing. I could see that. Praise to right. mm-hmm. But let's get this right. Let's get it right. Yeah. <laughs> right. The implication that they don't have it right. Yeah, I think that's uh, helpful. You know, one of the things that strikes me, Rich, is we're just kind of wrap up here is, is that in in maybe neglecting too much, right, the critical side of Christianity. Yeah. And the Christian message. You know, we we miss connecting with something that everyone knows they actually experience, right? That like one of the things that that, that's really powerful about Christianity is, and you can see this in the popular world, right? Is we we experience our own brokenness, right? That's right. We experience our own failure all the time maybe to greater or lesser degrees or in different areas, right? Mm-hmm. But one thing for sure that the New Testament and Jesus teaches us is, yeah, you may not be a prostitute, but you may be demonically prideful, right? And you yeah. better, you know, you you don't don't throw rocks at the prostitute, right? Um, the, um, the, we experience that. And then we ch- and then the secular world tries to give us all these fake solutions for it, right? Yeah. You know, what you need to do is is you know just get really committed to your mental health. Now, I think mental health is important. Don't misunderstand me. But you know, like the mental health is the solution, or uh, become crazy about exercise and become super fit, and that's the solution, or become the crazy entrepreneur, and that's the solution, and make tons of money, and you know, you know whatever. All or these fake solutions. Yourself. Or just accept it, yeah, and affirm it, right? And it's great, you know, and you're like, but yeah. I'm miserable, right? <laughs> you know? yeah. and, we, and people go through this cycle, I think, over and over again of being really miserable because they don't get the real solution to their brokenness, the brokenness that they experience. I'll tell you, one of the things, you know? one of the things that I've found, I'm not like a counselor, mm-hmm. but I've, you know, in the course of my career, I've had occasion to gain the trust of, you know, lots of people. And, um, because particularly I teach on issues that cut directly to their condition. Sure. Um, I find that very often students will come to me, you know, and they'll, you could see that they're grieving. They're in great pain over their own brokenness. Mm-hmm. And what I found that when, when people come to you that way, um, one of the most helpful things you could do is acknowledge the brokenness. Right. To validate that experience. In, indeed, I'm not going to tell you there's nothing wrong with you. That's not, I know that that's not, that's, yeah. but I'm telling you right now, in my experience, absolutely. Yeah. Acknowledging, yeah. but being I accepting agree. of it, saying, you know, you're not alone. 
the mm-hmm. human condition um we all have this human condition mm-hmm. this is how it's mm-hmm. expressing itself in your case sure yeah. Uh, yeah so let's kind of work through it we can work through it together yeah that's great yeah that's important well thank you rich i think it's a good conversation i think at least i mean obviously there are many factors that we could have explored other you know perspectives and uh that that also are important in thinking about this topic but i i think you know kind of the the trajectory of of modern thought into uh kind of a neo-pelagian kind of position um and and sort of the ramifications for that for the the ministry of the church that's at least maybe one important element right yeah uh and 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 thinking through these things uh do you have any uh final comments for us yeah well i mean so as my the last thing we were talking about was the um the new areopagus and that's a theme again that was a theme important to john paul ii I would say that at this stage in the history of the church, it's underemphasized. I don't mm-hmm. think that it was ever developed to the point that it should have been, um, mm-hmm. by which I mean really embraced by all the ministers of the church and mm-hmm. by uh, all those in positions of um, authority in the church, sure. like professors of theology and philosophy at our institute. Right. Yeah. Um, yep. The idea that we're that we have a three-flanked um, conversation to have, right? That we need to confront realities in three different places, or mm-hmm. whatever those places are in the modern world. We talk mm-hmm. about the Dionysian spirit, and we talk about secularism and nihilism. Mm-hmm. Um, we we talked about um, you know other religious views that are very strong but very different from our own, mm-hmm. and um, highly technocratic um mindsets right all of those are flanks that the church must engage but must engage with this idea that we have something more than that mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that whatever it is that they're groping at that's good that is to be affirmed to whatever extent that's possible um is is isn't gonna isn't gonna get us where we ultimately need to go unless we have this this other thing that the church uniquely offers right, which right. God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, resurrection from the dead, eternal mm-hmm. life, vision of God in his essence. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's wisely said and and uh, uh well said. Um well thanks for a lot, Rich. I think there's a lot of like good good things to think about, uh good things to talk about more, maybe follow up on a further conversation. Um, I hope uh, all of our listeners, uh, you know, were edified and enjoyed this. If you did, please uh, uh, like uh, this on, on YouTube or whatever you're listening to. Please share this content with others. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't done so already. Uh, you can go over to CatholicStudiesAcademy.com, find courses to purchase, as well as links to all of our content in the past. Um, so yeah, take advantage of all that and um, look forward to to reaching out to you again in about a week, 10 days. Uh, Until then, God bless.